I'm going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn uh, to the book of Acts this morning, to the book of Acts. And we've been in a series that we've entitled Unfinished, uh, looking uh, verse by verse through the book of Acts. And if you are unaware of the uh, the Bible very much and, and maybe don't know much about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the story that tells us about what takes place after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through Jesus' disciples. What did they do after Jesus Christ had been resurrected? from the grave. And we have been studying through and learning that God was doing a great thing through the lives of the disciples. And we here today, 2,000 years later, are a byproduct of the unfinished work that God started in those early disciples. And we now take up the mantle as Christ followers to continue that in our areas of, of uh, life and in our areas of work and play where God has given us a unique opportunity just as he did those early disciples to uh, take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that needed it. And we've been learning over and over again that God had been doing great things. They start out with 120 in an upper room, bewildered and in many ways fearful uh, of what the days were going to bring. But by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we have now gotten to chapter 10 and chapter 11 of this of this book and we've learned that now this group that started with 120 has now gotten into the tens of thousands and being a church that had started in Jerusalem now is going out through Judea and Samaria the area surrounding Jerusalem and even to now beginning to the uttermost parts of the world we know that this group that started was a Jewish only group but as we are learning lastly in these last couple of weeks that it's now moved from being not Jewish only but also to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But all of this growth and all of this opportunity uh, didn't come without its struggles. Uh, the church struggled at many different times as they continued to grow, as God's word moved forward. And so many times when God is on the move, there are times of great struggle. In Acts chapter 5, we see the struggle with Ananias and Sapphira, who sin against the Lord and lie against the Lord about what they had given to the church and lied to the people of the church, and God dealt with them in a swift and just way. We see some of the logistical issues of a growing and vibrant church when some of the widows in Acts chapter 6 say that they're being neglected in the daily distribution of food and the church has got to address that issue and and make sure that all the needs of the people in the church are taken care of but both of those things would pale in comparison when we get to acts chapter 7 stephen one of the uh, new followers of jesus christ is out preaching and proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ and up to this point people had uh, given them a hard time they maybe had mocked them maybe uh, put them uh, out on the periphery but this time was different as he He's preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. The people became angry, and under the oversight of a man named Saul of Tarsus, Stephen would be killed for his faith. And in those days, in Acts chapter 8, we learn that a great persecution breaks out, and Saul is the one who goes door-to-door hunting down believers because he hated the way of Christianity. And that would go on for some time, and God would use that to scatter the church into the far-off places of the world so that more people could hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we learn in Acts chapter 9 that this Saul who is hunting down the church, this Saul who hated Christ in the way of of Christianity uh, would meet Jesus Christ face to face. He'd be blinded by uh, the glory uh, of Jesus Christ and would come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we'll learn uh, next fall uh, the rest of the story with regards to Saul who would become Paul the Apostle. 
But then in Acts chapter 10, uh, something amazing takes place. And that is that Peter gets a vision from the Lord that God has seemingly opened the door, not just to the Jewish people to know Jesus, but for the Gentiles as well. And the angel comes to uh, Peter and tells him that there is a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who is a God-fearing man, but who needs to hear the gospel. And God had been doing a work in Cornelius' life, and he sends Peter. God does to Cornelius's house to proclaim uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ so that Cornelius could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and as a result of that a whole household of Roman citizens a whole household of Roman military family come to know Jesus and bow the knee to Jesus and are filled by the Holy Spirit as we learned last week but right when you would think that everybody would be excited about it we find out when Peter gets home Nobody's really happy. They don't like where God is leading the church. They don't like what Peter has done. And this morning, we're going to learn about what it means to have an attitude adjustment. Because sometimes, quite frankly, we need to have our thoughts and our perspectives examined and and repurposed for the sake of being able to do a greater work in Christ Jesus. But to do that, let's look at Acts chapter 11 this morning, verses 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible or that chair Bible uh, where near you and you can find our passage on page 919. Let's read uh, this text and hear what's going on and then we'll jump right into the message. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained uh, to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. In a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and the birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I stand, could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come before you and we come back to this series that we've had sitting on the shelf for, for the last couple months and we are reminded of the great work that you have been doing in the book of Acts, the work that you were doing in the early church. And Lord, in many ways we covet those things. We, we want to see you work in our lives in the same way. But Lord, we recognize as, as, as great of things that you were doing, there were things that uh, caused us to stumble. There were things that caused your early disciples to, to falter and, and to argue with one another. And Lord, I'm so thankful for Luke's history of, of the early church and that we can see it wasn't a perfect place and it was a place that didn't have all the answers. And we can take solace in the fact that we're not perfect, nor do we have all the answers. So Lord, allow us by their example to learn and grow and to become more mature in our understanding of who you are and our understanding uh, of our own place in your gospel. Father, I pray that we would learn not only spiritual truths, but practical ones as well as we go through these verses. And I pray, Lord, that it would change and transform our lives. To you be the glory and honor for all that you do in this service and what you're going to do in our lives as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a young boy, there were there was a phrase that struck fear in my heart. And I knew that the phrase would be used. I knew the phrase would come. And it, the phrase signified an event uh, that inevitably was going to take place. In my school days, there were uh, moments when the teacher would say something that no matter how good of a day I was having, it would bring me to utter despair. Those three words, parent-teacher conference. And I remember the teacher would, would talk about that. And I remember at our particular school that it wasn't good enough for it to be a parent-teacher conference, but they wanted you to be a part of it. They wanted the student to uh, be a part of the, the time. And I remember I was in the elementary school. I was struggling with the teacher that I had. And, and my free spirit had gotten the best of me a couple different times, maybe a whole bunch of times. And I knew uh, what I had done. And I knew the kind of student I had been. And, and that was one thing, but now you were going to bring my parents into it and you were going to rehearse all the things that had taken place in that semester. And I was filled with despair. That day came and we were sitting out in the hallway and I remember the family in front of me. I remember the student, I can still remember them coming out and they're filled with all kinds of pride and joy. Oh, junior, you are such a good boy. Oh, look at all these wonderful A's and, and all of that. And, and I remember the teacher said, all right, it all come on in and I remember feeling like I was a dictator going on a trial for war crimes and I remember walking in and sitting down and and it started out bad and it didn't get any better and and my parents sat there my mom cried and and we we just sat there and and endured it listen I'm telling you this because I know some of you man you need hope for your kid right maybe they'll turn out to be a pastor one day but I remember sitting there and just really knowing, man, my dad hasn't said anything. And my dad usually doesn't stay quiet. And I remember the only phrase that he shared was after all of the crimes against humanity had been shared, my dad said, hey, don't worry about it. It's Friday. And by Monday, Tim will be a new man. And he said, because Tim this weekend is going to get an attitude adjustment. 
Now, I was pretty young, but when it came to attitude, I thought that your attitudes resided somewhere between your heart and your head, right? I don't know what my backside had to do with it, but it's amazing what a swift kick to the behind can do to your heart and head, right? And my dad made it very clear, teacher, his, his perspective, teacher, his outlook, teacher, his vision as a student is going to change dramatically. And the reason why it's going to change is because it has to. If it doesn't, he's not going to be productive. If he doesn't, he's not going to graduate one day. If he doesn't, he's not going to be a capable, um, employee, a capable citizen within the world that he lives in. And so something had to change. And hopefully I can say it, it has. But as Christians, from time to time, we too need attitude adjustments. At times, our thinking, our perspectives grow stale. Sometimes it's more about us than it is about God. Sometimes it's more about our preferences and prerogatives than it is about God and His will and plan. And God deems it right, like a good heavenly Father, to say to us, listen, you need an attitude adjustments. The early church, Luke tells us in Acts 11, needs an attitude adjustment. Now, God is doing great things through the church, and the church has been faithful in their following of God's vision. Jesus had told them before he left, I want you to go make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And we can watch point by point how they've done that. Now, listen, they haven't done it all willingly. Some of it took persecution for them to leave Jerusalem. But they took the times of persecution and they utilized them to the best of their abilities. But all the while this is going on, I want you to recognize that up to Acts chapter 11, the pursuit of the Great Commission had been a Jewish one. It was a pursuit to find other Jewish people who needed to... uh, tear off the chains of Judaism with its rules and regulations and to now come under the heading and the banner of Jesus Christ. But forget about all the other people. Forget about the Samaritans. Forget about the, the Gentile dogs for sure. Don't, don't worry about them. The, this gospel is only for people who will continue to pursue many of the Jewish traditions and rituals. And as a result of that, what we learn is that God wants to give His church and His people an attitude adjustment. He wants to refocus them. He wants them to understand that what they're doing is not productive for them, nor is it good for the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they're doing won't impact the world like God intended for it to. And so he begins to work with Peter, the leader, and he moves in Peter to the point that last week we learned that Peter comes to the realization that God shows no partiality. Jew, Gentile alike, God loves them and has a unique plan for them through the work of his son Jesus Christ but in this text today Peter comes back from this great experience where he sees Gentiles experience in many ways the same things that the early church did on the day of Pentecost where they come to know Jesus they speak in tongues they're baptized and filled with the spirit and what we learn is that Peter comes back and the crowd of Christians in Jerusalem don't applaud him They don't high-five him, 
they criticize him. And it's in our text that we see what I would like to see, three elements of an attitude adjustment this morning that all of us need to take stock in and ask the question, am I thinking, am I working in a way that honors and continues to progress forward the plan and will of God? Our text gives us a couple things that we need to understand. First of all, I want you to understand that uh, the first attitude adjustment we need is we need to have defined for us what real Christianity is. Now, one of the reasons why we need an attitude adjustment is, is not because of the status quo, but because change takes place. We're going to learn that the real attitudes, the real thoughts of people come out. And I will tell you that you start changing things, you will see real attitudes of people come out. Over the last couple of weeks, listen, uh, we've done major changes here at Village Bible Church. I mean, crazy, innovative changes. We painted two walls. I mean, talk about, I mean, we are moving at earth-shattering speeds here. And we were painting, I was watching some of the guys that were painting, we were here on Wednesday night. Now, right away, people will say, the people that struggle with change the most are you old people, right? That's not what we learned in our scientific experiment. On Wednesday night, the kids are entering into church, and we're painting the walls, and you would have thought we were sacrificing cats in the lobby. I mean, they were horrified. What happened to our church? Oh my gosh, they're piling together in prayer meetings. You know, just, oh my goodness, what has taken place? What happened? Change. And when change takes place, we get all wired up. We get all fired up about what, what is happening. And, and is this the beginning of more changes and, and what's going to happen? Or our perspectives start to be skewed where I really don't like that color. I really don't like that wall. I really don't like that pastor, okay? And we get all fired up about things because change is what brings out in many times the real us, isn't it? It's that change, as subtle, as small as it is, it can get us so fired up. And and sometimes, and I don't believe it's the truth here, but sometimes we can get so fired up that we fight against the plans and will of God. And in some ways, that's what the early church found itself doing. But here's what Peter does. Peter uh, helps us to understand in his experience, what is real Christianity? What is real Christianity? Because what he has done is he has crossed the line. He took the gospel to a group of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and he presented the gospel to them. And listen, here's what he didn't tell them. That they had to have their men circumcised. That they had to follow the dietary laws of Judaism. That they had to celebrate the Sabbath in a particular way. That they had to uh, become, in many ways, a Christian Jew. And because of that, we learn that there's a group of individuals, they were called Judaizers in the church, those who pursued Judaism along with Jesus, if you will, who said, if you don't do all of these things plus Jesus, you can't be saved. So Peter comes back, and he's done this amazing work, and he enters into probably a house or a gathering spot, and he gets criticized. Not only did you hang out with uh, uncircumcised men, Gentiles, but you also ate with them. You fellowshiped with them. You gave them, uh, in many ways, the the um, stamp of approval that they are Christians. And the group says, this 
is wrong. Well, it's important for us to recognize that amidst this, something very important is going on. Now, I want you to notice that Luke has used three opportunities to talk about this. Twice in Acts chapter 10 and once in Acts chapter 11, he has almost word for word verbatim addressed this text. In fact, we just read the text that we read when we were finishing it up earlier this year when we left off in Acts chapter 10. It's almost word for word the same text. So why would we spend more time on it? Well, I've told you when we study the Bible, we always want to look for patterns. We want to see words that are used more than once. And, and we need to take that as a clue that the writer is telling us something. Well, here Luke, who is a meticulous historian, shares a story three times. What's the reason for him sharing it three times? Did the copier machine break? No. Does he have dementia? No. He's done it for effect, and what he wants us to do is continue to come back to this story. The best way to illustrate it is what I love most about the Thanksgiving dinner. I'll be honest with you, Thanksgiving dinner is all right the first time, but it's way better second and third time, right? There's something about making that turkey sandwich, there's something about making that turkey soup uh, from the leftovers, if you will. You see, what Luke is trying to do is he's wanting us to glean all that we can from this story, but that by the time we're done, all we have is a spent, if you will, carcass of bones because we've grabbed everything we can off of what's transpired. And here's the reason why. Something huge has taken place. Something huge has changed in the church. Peter didn't come home and say, hey, guys, uh, we painted a couple walls in the lobby. Oh, my gosh, right? What took place was Peter comes back and he has welcomed into the church people that were never welcomed there before. What a major change. What a major shift. And to catch up to that, Peter has to help the church recognize it. And we need to recognize it as well. So let's notice a couple things about what real Christianity is. Because it obviously wasn't what these uh, people who were criticizing thought it was. Well, let's understand, first of all, that Christianity isn't about rituals or customs. It isn't about rituals and customs. You see, when the Great Commission was articulated, the thought was that Jesus was talking, go on a search and rescue mission for all of those Jewish people who are far from God. And go find them. And they're all over. They're in Jerusalem. They're in Judea. They're in Samaria. And you will find Jewish people, he says, in the uttermost parts of the world. That's how they interpreted the Great Commission. But what God had in store, what God had promised, not just in uh, the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, but the promise that God had made to Abraham in his covenant way back in, in Genesis, was that God would call all people back to himself. People from all tribes and all nations. That the amount of people that come to know a God and, and walk with God would outnumber the sands of the seashore. And so here the church now has come to this seismic shift of what's transpired uh, in the church. And one of the things that the church needs to recognize is they've got to let go of Judaism. They've got to let go of the way they used to do religion. No more customs. 
No more rituals are going to get you closer to God. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus Christ. Peter announces the gospel with no uh, contingencies, with no strings attached, no quid pro quo. He proclaims the gospel. And he says, you don't have to do anything like we do by faith if you believe and by faith if you repent and by faith that you proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, is Lord, then you are saved. You're a part of the family. You are a part of the fellowship of believers. But the problem is, even today, we put things in the way of people coming to know Jesus. We say to people, hey... Before uh, you can come to Jesus, clean up your mouth. You swear too much. Before you come to Jesus, uh, you need to uh, give to the church or, or serve the church or, or go to church. And we add all of these things that in many ways are good things. They're, they're things that a mature believer in Christ needs to be working on and, and needs to be addressing in their life. But these are hurdles of sanctification, not hurdles to salvation. And we need to be careful because what we will do to people is we will tell people that they can have Jesus as long as they meet our expectations of what is necessary. And we have our own rituals. We have our own customs that we have built. And so what is Christianity all about? It's about receiving Christ. Notice in the text that right away Peter tells us in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. What does it mean that they received the Word of God? What does it mean that they received Christ? The idea of receiving Christ is much bigger than we many times give it credit for. Many times when we talk about our testimony, we will talk about the moment of our conversion. I came to know I received Jesus when the preacher preached and, and, and I made a commitment. At this uh, camp service, at this concert, uh, in this small group, I came to know Jesus. But I want you to know our salvation is an iceberg. And the part that we see above the service is only a fraction of all that's going on. There's a whole lot more underneath the surface that we many times don't give a lot of credit to God for. And so how did Cornelius, how did these Gentiles come to know Jesus? Well, the word was preached and they believed it, but it starts way before then. Let's take a stock in the idea that Cornelius... Before Peter even comes into his life, God is moving in Cornelius' life, positioning him, giving him the faith and the ability to understand the gospel when it would be preached to him long before Peter ever comes. God is involved in Cornelius' life before Peter ever enters the picture. And I want you to know that that is a God thing. Salvation is of the Lord's. Cornelius isn't doing something of value, and God says, okay, because Cornelius is doing this, uh, then I'll let him get saved. God is moving proactively in the life of Cornelius before he ever comes to know Jesus. He's also working in, in an amazing way in the life of the one who is going to proclaim the gospel. Peter 
is given a vision. Peter is announced to uh, by an angel. God is doing some really amazing things in the evangelist's life as he's doing amazing things in the seeker's life. And he's going to, in an amazing way, draw these two people together so that uh, Cornelius can come to know Jesus. All of this is under the surface. For those who are followers of Jesus Christ, have you taken stock and, and seen what God was doing before you ever said to Jesus, I believe? The people he brought into your life, the circumstances that he allowed to take place that continued to draw you closer and closer to God. These things are important. Now, no, notice that it wasn't that God was just doing a movement. They too had to do something. Peter had to be obedient and preach the gospel. They had to receive the word. What was the word? The word was that Jesus Christ, this man Jesus, is the Son of God sent to save sinners. And they believe. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are able to show evidence of the Holy Spirit's working in their lives. One of the first steps that they're a part of is baptism. They're baptized not only by the Spirit, but also in water. Now this is important because it helps us to identify, and we see this a lot, and we hear about this a lot, that there are a lot of people who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when we see the numbers and surveys that tell us that, we're always amazed. Well, why does our world look the way it does? Why does our culture act the way it does? Why is it our friends and our neighbors and maybe even our family announce with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but don't live for him each and every day? I want you to know Christianity is defined not by just what we say, but how we respond to what we believe in. You know, it's easy. We just went through a brand new song talking about a creed. This is what we believe in. But what good is it to believe in something if it doesn't impact who we are? What good is it to recite something if it doesn't come from the heart? If it doesn't change us and move us? That is the glorious part of the creed. It is announced, it is recited by individuals who not only believe it, but it impacts them each and every step of the way. These Gentiles didn't just affirm with their mouth something, they affirmed it in action. And so we see salvation in Christianity is a work God is doing. It's a work that God has done before we ever really take notice of it taking place. It is a work that God now has given to us to proclaim to others, not just to affirm things, but to live them out in action. And so here we now know that Christianity isn't a, a new form of Judaism, but it's a total new ball game. And it is centered and founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to see this morning is our wrong attitudes come when critique comes our way. And we need to uh, learn and we need to know, and Peter helps us by demonstrating how to address criticism. Look at our text again. We are told in Acts chapter 11, verse 2, So when Peter went up, after all this has transpired, Cornelius and his family have come to know Jesus. What a glorious thing has transpired. What happens? He goes back home, and he goes to his friends, and it tells us they criticized him. They criticized him. Now when we see this word criticized, we need to define our terms. There are two forms of criticism. There's constructive criticism, 
And the Bible talks about constructive criticism. These are hard words or difficult words from a close friend. A close friend who says these things in a desire to grow you and build you up. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 says, Words from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Now, I don't think what we are getting here is constructive criticism. I might be wrong, but even if they had good intentions behind it, I see that they've already condemned Peter as guilty before he enters the room. And I think that there's been talk, I think there's been gossip that's been going on, so when Peter gets there, they can announce to Peter, this whole group of Peter, Peter, you're bad. Peter, you've done bad things. You know, it's a parent-teacher conference all over again. How could you have done these things, Peter? You've wronged the church. You've wronged Jesus. Some of us know what it means or what it feels like to be in Peter's shoes. Some random day during the work week, your superior comes into your office and they criticize you for a job that they don't think was done really well. No matter how hard you've worked at it, no matter what you've got uh, behind it, they've said it's no good. Maybe you've heard it from a teacher or a coach. Maybe even closer to home, you've heard it from your spouse, criticizing the things that you've done. Uh, you've tried, you've, you've sought to do the best you can, and only been told that good enough isn't good enough. And this is where Peter finds himself. And the question is, is how do we respond when criticism comes? And, and I want you to notice a couple things about criticism. And it's criticism, it is really easy for us as Christians to lose our mind when we are critiqued. Peter comes back and he's excited. He wants to share the good news of what's going on. And when he gets into the room, they call him to the carpet. They use derogatory terms like uncircumcised men speaking of the Gentiles. And, and they call him out with scorn. They're angry at Peter. Well, how is Peter going to respond? Well, I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, remember that criticism can come from friends and foes alike. The church had always been criticized. The church had always been mocked by its enemies. The church had been persecuted by its enemies. But these aren't the enemies of the church. The criticism that's coming are not from the outside, but from within. And sometimes those are the hardest critiques to work through. Peter is close to these men and these women who are critiquing him for the job he has done. He has had a moving of the Spirit by God's divine plan, and he comes back, and those closest to him say, you've blown it. Now, Peter isn't alone in this. Jesus himself in his earthly ministry was criticized as being crazy by his own family. On a couple different occasions in the gospel, his biological family comes and grabs him because they believe he's lost his mind. And they criticize him. Even James, his brother, would say that, that he was a critic before he ever came to know Jesus as his Savior. And so some of us are experiencing criticism from maybe people we don't know, but, but this is a picture of criticism that comes from people we do know, those closest to us. So we shouldn't be surprised when criticism comes. This world is full of critics. 
And some jobs have greater levels of criticism with it than others do. And that's okay. It's going to be a part of it. Now, the second thing we need to recognize is when criticism comes, don't become too easily frustrated. Don't become too easily frustrated. So let's look. They criticize Peter in verse 2. And notice in verse uh, 3 what Peter, or verse 4, it says, And Peter began to give him a piece of his mind. No, no. One translation puts it this way. And Peter went off on him. Another translation. And Peter rebuked them harshly and said, How dare you? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? No, it says, And Peter began and explained to them in order. He's not frustrated. He's not angry. He's not defensive. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't pontificate about how much above criticism he is. He doesn't use his place as a leader in the church as a way to silence and pounce on the criticizers. But isn't that what you and I do? Someone critiques us. And I will tell you in my own heart, when someone critiques me, the first thing that happens is the defense mechanisms go up. The first thing that happens when you criticize me is alarms, womp, 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 and then those, the guardrails all come up. The walls start building. A great, beautiful wall is created. Okay? Only half of you got that joke. Okay? And I become defensive. And my natural response, and I'm going to believe because I think it's a natural part of who we are, our natural response is not just defensiveness, but once I get the walls up, now I start pulling the pins of the grenades and I start throwing them over the wall, right? Well, if you're going to criticize me, I've got something to criticize about you. You don't think I'm very good at this? Well, let me tell you what I think of you. Let me tell you how you're doing at your job. Who are you to tell me if I'm doing a good job or not? This isn't what Peter does. But we do this all the time. We get easily frustrated. And instead of responding in love, we lash out at the attacker with whatever harsh accusation we can think of, and it usually moves around these things. Their motives, their competency, their knowledge, hoping to put them on the defensive so they forget about why they criticized us. If I can get you to think about your issues, who are you going to be able to think about my issues? And some of us, this is how our marriages are. Some of us, this is how we parent our kids. Some of us, this is how we go to war every day at work. It is a defensive counterattack because someone has criticized us. Well, we can't do it. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so we've got to corral our feelings. Do you think that Peter was upset? He had experienced an amazing experience. He had six witnesses that could say, listen, we saw what happened. Peter was on the right thing. And he didn't do that. He didn't get all frustrated, but he stayed true. And in order, he did what's, what we need to do, and that is state the facts. When we're criticized, we need to state the facts. Now, this is the body of, of the passage. 
Some of you are like, man, we're, we're already, you know, beyond the 10 o'clock hour and he hasn't even gotten to the passage. Well, this is the passage. The passage is him retelling the story. And here's what I'm going to tell you. We don't need to sit here very long. The retelling of the story has one unique application from it. And that is what Peter says in Acts 11 is the same of what was articulated in Acts 10. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't lie. He doesn't uh, build the story up or, or make the story sound better for the consumption of the Jewish people. He doesn't say, well, listen, you know, we did talk about circumcision and they're really thinking about it, so let's give them some time. He doesn't coddle the circumcised group, the Jewish people, by thinking that uh, something greater is going to happen. He states the facts just as they are. When we are criticized... We need to state our case. We have the right to state our case and do so in a God-honoring way by being honest to what we're being accused of. Peter says, all right, I get it. You weren't there. I get it that a lot of gossip has, has gotten to you faster than I have, but I want to share with you, I want to help you understand the whole story. I want you to understand what was going on step by step in the process. And, and listen. They may not buy it, and that's okay. Your, your criticizer may say you're lying through your teeth. I've had people, when I've stated the facts, where they have said, you're lying, there's motive behind what you're doing, and, and as far as I can remember, there wasn't. And so sometimes you're going to state the facts, and people are going to say, that's all bunk, it, it ain't true, it ain't real. But we're called to be honest and to speak with honesty and integrity about what's transpired. And that's exactly what Peter does, step by step. And in order, here are the events that took place. And his story never changed. It remained true. Now, once we've done that... And maybe they don't get one over. Now, we'll learn in a moment that Peter wins over the critics. But let's say that they don't. Let's say the critics at the end of this passage say, and we still think Peter's a lousy guy who, who really blew it with Cornelius. What are we to do with that criticism? What are we to do when the critic doesn't stop criticizing? Christian, find the hidden value. Find the hidden value. There's a couple different kinds of critique that we get. First of all, there's accurate critiques. That is where the majority, and listen, we are rarely 100% right in our critiques. When we critique someone, there may be real truth to what we are either being critiqued about or what we're critiquing someone else about, but rarely are we 100% right. There's always a mixture of truth and, and exaggeration, a truth and, and, and something else that we bring to our criticism of others or others bring to us. But I will tell you, if there is even 1% of truth in a critic, in, in a critic's words to you, we need to stop and we need to change. Now you say, but listen, they're brutal. They're terrible. They're the spawn of Satan. I'm not going to listen to a word that they say. Well, listen, even if the spawn of Satan gives you a nugget of truth about who you are and you know it to be true is an opportunity to change. And so not all criticism should just be thrown out. It should be filtered. What is good, what isn't. Well, if your critic, your enemy says something accurate about you, that you know in your heart, 
then you're missing a golden opportunity to change. What about if it is inaccurate information, but given seemingly in a good spirit? And so this is what I believe is going on. I don't think they hate Peter. I don't think that they want to destroy Peter. I think that these guys love Peter, but have the wrong information, and with good intentions, they're beating up their friend and missing the boat. What are we to do then? When someone comes, when someone from our church comes, and someone criticizes what's taking place, should we jump off the handle and, and go off on them? Should we pontificate about how important we are in the church or in our small groups or, or whatever? No, we have an opportunity not to change, but an opportunity to teach. This is what Peter does. He teaches them, let me tell you the real story. I know you heard some other things, but, but let me get the truth out there. Paul told Timothy as a young pastor that this was going to be important. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul says this, The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently, I hate that word, he must gently, he must gently instruct. What do you mean, God, as a pastor, I can't yell at my people? I can't put them in their place. No, Tim. It's even worse that it's written to a pastor named Tim. You have to gently instruct. Listen to what he says. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. That isn't speaking, listen, that isn't speaking of salvation. It's speaking of that they might understand the real story and might see the error in their ways. And so my job as a pastor and your job as a Christian isn't to drive this home with a hammer and spikes. It is to lovingly and caring to take the person and say, hey, you you don't have all the information. And I'm not going to get defensive about it. And I'm not going to get angry that that gossip and, and, and slanderous things have been said. Listen, it's okay. I've been a gossip and slander. I get it. It's a juicy piece of information. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you know the story. In order, Peter tells the story. He states the facts. Here's what's transpired. And at the end of when I share, you still may not like the answer, but at least you know the full story. But what happens if it's even worse than that, that these critics hate him, and want to hurt him. Maybe they want Peter's place in the ministry. And maybe they are angry at Peter that he's given up something so very important to them and now Peter's become an enemy to them. What happens then if your critic is an angry individual and who through maliciousness and slander wants to destroy you? What is your job as the one who's being criticized? Notice it's not an opportunity to change. It's not an opportunity to teach. It's an opportunity to show grace. It's an opportunity to show grace. Even then, we need to be careful. Even then, we need to recognize that our job isn't to fight. But we are to love those who persecute us, and we are to pray for our enemies. My dad once told me, be careful when you get into a fight with a pig. Both of you will get dirty, and the pig will be the only one who enjoys it. And some of us are getting into fights 
with people who want to bring us down and all they want to do is rile us up so we can look stupid, but we look stupid with the cause and banner of Christ over us. Can I just tell you, I've seen this happen on Facebook. Christians jumping into conversations they never should. And we just look dumb. The Bible tells us, warn a divisive person once and then have nothing to do with them. Leave it alone. But what about my reputation? Well, if you haven't proven your reputation to a whole set of people, one person's words aren't going to destroy it. And hopefully you've built an above reproach response that if someone comes and says something about you that you know isn't true, that those who mean the most to you would be able to say, yeah, I know that's not true about that individual as well. And leave it to God. Let God be the one who re- moves towards revenge. Let God be the one, as Romans tells us, the one who will repay. Show grace. Show love. That doesn't mean we don't protect ourselves, but we don't need to go on the offensive to destroy the critic who is among us. This is where Peter shows us time and time again what it means to be able to live amidst a world of criticism. And he does it well. Well, the final thing that we see, we've seen the spiritual, we've moved to the practical, and now it's just kind of this all-inclusive thing kind of ends our text, and, and it's here that we are declared the course we must take. Well, what are we to do? Like the good apostle, Peter charts a course. But not only him, but the entire church. And they serve as an example. They're not perfect. They had fights. They had quarrels. A couple months ago, my wife and I were having a discussion here at the church. And one of our uh, church members saw Amanda and I having a discussion. And they went home and they told their spouse, it's really great to see Tim and Amanda fight. I appreciate you, my friend, because I lost that fight. But they said, because I take solace that they're not perfect. I don't know what you've been watching, okay? But we're not perfect, and we're going to have our discussions like you have your discussions, right? But we take solace in the fact that the early church, it did a lot of amazing things, but they weren't perfect. They blew it in some major ways. But what I love about the early church is they fixed their problems by the grace and power of God. They addressed them, and, and how does... And how does the church do it? Notice a couple things. Number one, they recognize what we too must recognize, that God is always up to something good. Do you know that? Do you know that God is up to something good? Do you recognize in the worst of times, God is up to something good? That even amidst our persecution, even amidst our struggles, even amidst our temptation, even amidst the changes that happen, whether in our personal lives or in the life of the church or the workplace or our community, God is up to something good. Christians, we need to see the glass half full, not half empty. We need to recognize that God is doing a work that we could never have imagined that He would do. And because of that, we've got some things that we need to walk away from from that point. Number one, don't get in God's way. These people got in the way of God. They wanted to stop what God was doing. Some of us as parents are, in, are getting into God's way with our children. Some of us are doing it with our spouses. 
There are some churches that are, that are held captive by cantankerous people. I'm not saying here, but there are churches that are held hostage by cantankerous people who get in the way of doing what God wants to do. Don't get into the way of God. And what a great lesson for us to recognize that they had this whole opinion that they were fighting God's battle, and in fact, they weren't. They were fighting the battle that the devil wants him to fight, them to fight. And we need to recognize that we've got to get out of God's way. He's up to something good. We need to get out of His way. Number two, we need to stop giving grief and start showing grace. Are we those cantankerous people? Are we the ones who always are critical? Are we the ones who always, instead of saying a good thing, have to say a bad thing? Can I tell you, I do this as a leader. And I fail at it. And good godly men and women have to have to come and say, you know what? You're too negative at times. Cut it out. Well, I don't want to be negative. I want the gospel to move forward. And when I see it not being done well, I want to call it out. But I need to recognize that I need affirmation. I need love. I don't need to be knocked down. And sometimes I've knocked people down as a result of that. And some of us are sitting in the balcony of life criticizing everything that the people living their lives are doing. How great you're sitting in Jerusalem enjoying yourself while Peter's out preaching the gospel. He comes back with a whole bunch of new converts and the only thing that this group of people can do is criticize them. You know, here's the amazing thing. Archaeologists found a picture of this group and I found it and I want to put it on the screen for you. How many know what this picture is? That means you're old. Okay? This is from the Muppet Show. And at the end of the Muppet Show, after the Muppets had done all of their great performances, these two guys would come on the screen. And did they ever, help me out, did they ever say anything nice about the show? No. They knocked the show. They criticized the show. They shot the show down. They told the show to close up and go home. They made fun of the show. And some of us, quite frankly, are criticizing Christians. And God says, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to just be really honest with you. My dad is a godly, godly man. And he came to me some, some months ago. And he's getting up there in age. He's a, been a grandfather now for many years. And he's beginning to take stock in his life. And what he is learning, and it's such a true reality and something I need to remember now going into my 40s, is it doesn't matter. He'll say this to me all the time. It doesn't matter how you did at the beginning of the race it's how you finish the race. And my father is beginning the last leg of his race. And you know what his greatest temptation is? It's not pride. It's not lust. It's not sins of, uh, of slander or the sins of the mouth. It's not, it's not all the different sins that many of us as young people still struggle with and, and are fighting. You know what my dad's biggest concern is? He says, I don't want to become too critical. I don't want to become critical of my wife. I don't want to become critical of my children. I don't want to become critical of my grandchildren. I don't want to become critical of the church. And you know what he says? As he's gotten older, he says, man, things really tick me off. And the problem is, is that filter? Gone. Okay? Some of you, your, your filter's going bad right now. Okay? 
And my dad, bless his heart, has come to his two boys and say, call out the critical spirit in me. Call it out when you see it with me acting towards your mom that way. Call it out when you see me talking that way to you or, or to the kids. And I said, yeah, I'll call you out when you're talking to me about it. I can do that, Dad. You're doing it right now. And some of us need to stop and ask the question, God, is there an offensive way in me? Am I critical? When you enter into your home, when you enter into your workplace, when you enter into the church, is all you see the things that anger you? Or do you see God on the move doing something great? If it is the latter instead of the former, then you need to change your heart. You need to ask God to change it for you. Start showing grace to people. Loving on them. Enjoying that journey with them. And finally, we need to give God glory for all He's doing. Our text ends, and it ends at such a wonderful spot. It tells us in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Now, now notice real quick, and I don't have a lot of time. They fell silent, and then they glorified God. This is what happened. They stopped whining, and they started to worship. Some of us need to stop our whining and we need to start worshiping God for all that He has done. And they affirmed what God had said. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Listen, they got it right and you and I are a byproduct of this moment in Acts 11. Because of them, you and I have been welcomed into the church and been able to be a part of this church as God had called us to. Where do you struggle this morning? Do you need a better definition of what Christianity is? Do you need to start seeing how to deal with criticism? Do you need to know what course you need to take? Whatever it is, give it to the Lord and ask Him to give you the needed Spirit's power to be able to accomplish it.